You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are really glad that you're here. So uh, this is uh, several years ago now. It was probably in the first couple of years that my wife and I were married. I, um, she was working. I had the day off. So I decided that uh, I was going to make dinner. And uh, I figured if I'm going to make dinner, I was going to make for her my favorite meal. And um, really? That's hilarious. All right, that's one. We do go to two. We have to have a conversation. Okay. So, um, so and just FYI, my favorite meal is um, rice, black beans, and steak because I'm Cuban and I was conditioned this way. And so anyway, but the thing is, is that I, I knew how to make rice and I knew how to make rice when we got married. Someone gave us a Hitachi uh, rice maker, which is standard issue for all newlywed Cubans. And so, uh, and then uh, I've always known how to grill steak. So, uh, but I didn't know how to make the beans, so I called my mom and asked her if she could explain to me how to make beans. And so she's kind of, my mom, uh, and by the way, this is back then, so I'm, I'm, I have like a phone, you know, a phone from the wall. And so she's, we're talking, so she's explaining to me all the ingredients that I need. And then uh, she's explaining to me the inner workings of sofrito. And, uh, and so how long I keep the beans in the pressure cooker and all that. And how to make, I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then she gets to the end, she's like, Rodrigo, uh, which is what my parents call me. Uh, uh, or, anyway, so, um, so I just say something else. I'm like, I just, I can't tell you something else. I got to keep going. Because I, I went six minutes over last time, so I got to end on time today. And some of you are like, six minutes over? I thought this whole thing was going to be six minutes, and we're going to get out of here. So anyway, no, it just about 10, 10 minutes. And, uh, and then a little extra. And then, ap- then after 20, it's like a few minutes after that. And then after like 30 minutes, you're like, hey, there's only like an hour to go. And so anyway, uh, so she says, Rodrigo, are you writing all this down? And I, I said, no, don't worry. I got it memorized. So um, I, I start working, chop up. You know, I got a pretty rockin' sofrito that I'm making. And then I take the beans. I soak the beans. And uh, I put them in the pressure cooker. And, uh, and then um, the, she says it's going to be a little while. I forgot how long she said it was going to be, but that's not really important. And, um, but she, uh, but I sit down to watch a movie. And so, and I still remember the movie. It was Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And, uh, and so, and you know that there's, when a pressure cooker is doing what it's supposed to, it makes a certain sound that, that goes something like this. That's how you know all is well. All right. So the thing is, and so now I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm watching the movie. And if you remember, there's this one part of the movie, probably about an hour in where Indy, uh, he, he finds this, he goes to this cave and in, under this, in this cave, there's like this whole society that's living there and they're performing this ritual and there's like these drums and they're going, um, num, shabai, um, num, shabai, and they're doing this whole, whatever that is. And then this guy that's kind of like, I don't know, the leader of this group. And then there's all these guys standing there and everything is getting really loud. And, uh, and then the, he gets, he fixates on, the leader guy fixates on this one guy, and he goes like this, and he puts his hand inside the guy's chest and pulls out his beating heart. And then the, the drums are just go boom, so loud. And then I hear this boom, this explosion. And I'm like, man, I don't even have surround sound. This DVD sounds so good. And so, and the problem is after the boom, 
was the most hideous smell I've ever smelled. And then I started thinking like the, I stopped hearing this like a long time ago. And uh, the pressure cooker had exploded. Now, I don't know, if you have a pressure cooker at home, I want you to get home and think about what it would take for this thing to explode. And anyway, um, it, it exploded. Beans went everywhere. I had to throw the pressure cooker away because uh, there was beans. It was, like, it was like a beehive like on the top of it. There was beans everywhere. I had beans on the ceiling. I had beans on the walls. There, beans somehow got behind my fridge. And uh, I don't even know how that worked because that was across the room. And uh, it was so bad. I mean, the lid was off. Everything was so crazy. And, um, and so I had to, and it was a popcorn ceiling. And so I, I, had, I had to scrape the beans off the popcorn ceiling. And I didn't, I don't own, but you know, we lived in an apartment. I don't have paint. And so I didn't know what to do. So after I got most of it off, then I, I, a friend of mine had told me about this trick because he had done this at a party. And, uh, and so I took toothpaste and I put toothpaste on the ceiling to cover up the bean stains. And it's okay, four out of five dentists approved. And so, but I got that, that going. And, uh, and so anyway, now, I, and I got the thing for the most part cleaned up, but I could not get the smell out of, out of, out of, our, out of, our, of our apartment. So I called my wife and I'm like, hey, listen, I was trying to do a nice thing for you, and uh, this the one thing led to another, and uh, next thing now there was an explosion. And anyway, so I'm saying, and she's and my wife is asking me. I mean, it's like, uh huh, and tell me more. And she's asking for all these details, and I'm like, man, why she, why she really want to know everything? Like, what's the smell like? And uh, and and so anyway, it turns out my wife had me on speakerphone, and um, her the entire office heard what was happening and was laughing at me, and hence. To end the story, this is why I have low self-esteem. And uh, now, <laughs> but she got home and she's like, this is so bad. And I was like, hey, uh, we have to move. And, uh, and we did. And so <laughs> now I, I'm telling you, you've, you, everybody's got at least one moment. And sometimes it's not just a moment. Sometimes it's a season of life where things do not go how you expected them to. And as much as we try not to, we all have expectations. We have expectations of each other. We have expectations of situations. We have expectations of what we think is going to happen in the future, what a new year is going to bring. But if we're really being honest, we also have expectations of God. And this is at the heart of what I want to spend our time talking about today. Because the ancient Jews that were living in the time of Jesus, they had expectations as well. They had expectations of God. They had expectations about the Messiah and who they thought the Messiah was going to be. They thought the Messiah was going to be a military leader. They had the expectation that the Messiah would show up and he was going to mount a resistance against the Roman Empire and overthrow their occupation of Israel. And uh, Jesus shows up and while he did miraculous things and people were impressed and some say, man, could he be the Messiah? He didn't want to use force to usher in the kingdom of Israel. Instead, he was talking about the kingdom of God. A kingdom that's here but not totally here. A kingdom that's invisible but is becoming and will be visible. And Jesus taught that the kingdom of God is anywhere where God is ruling and reigning. And here's what I love about the chapter that we're headed into in chapter 21, because this is where it, everything changes in the Gospel of Matthew, because throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has been healing people, feeding people, helping people, loving people, but then telling everyone to keep silent about the fact that he's the Messiah. But today is different. Today, he's sending out notices ahead. 
He's, he's got everything ready. He's got everything prepared to let people know that he is the Messiah. And he's presenting himself as Israel's Messiah. And today, they're, they're going to see that day, they, they saw a different Messiah than they had expected. But it's the Messiah that they needed, and it's the one that we need. And I, I believe that um, there's a powerful lesson for us when we, when we look at this, because sometimes God gives us what we need over what we want. And it takes maturity to see that God isn't seeking to disappoint us. Instead, he's trying to bless us if we'll recognize it. And that's what he's trying to get the ancient Jews to see. And and listen, and we will be much happier and live with much more joy if we'll see it as well. So we're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 21 of the Gospel of Matthew. And here's what we read. He says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, that Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately, immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them and immediately he will send them. And all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly, and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road, cut down branches uh, from the trees and spread them on the road. And then the multitudes who went before and those who cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, we're going to talk about expectations. And the first thing we're going to talk in particular to that is that in this story that we see as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, Jesus is revealing his timing. Now, this is called the triumphal entry. And what makes it important? Because this is the day that Jesus is presenting himself to Israel as the Messiah. And everyone who saw Jesus work and heard Jesus teach thought he might be the Messiah, but this is the day that he was revealing himself. Now, why is this important? Because this day was 500 years in the making. Now, if you remember in uh, John chapter 2, if you've read the story of Jesus turning water into wine, You'll know that when his mother, Mary, asks him to do this for this couple, he says, woman, my hour is not yet. Now, what is he saying? This is not my moment to reveal myself to the world that I'm the Messiah. So he's saying, it's not my time. It's not my time. Throughout his ministry, he's saying, it's not my time until today. You see, for us to really capture why this particular day is so important, I've got to give you a a quick little uh, history lesson, uh, if I can. And it starts in uh, 606 BC. In 606 BC, the Babylonians come and they carry away certain people uh, into uh, captivity. Uh, They come back in 597 when there's a rebellion in Israel. And then they come back in 586 and they level the city of Jerusalem and carry just about everyone captive. And then the prophet Jeremiah makes this, uh, says this, this prophecy and says this, that there will be uh, that the captivity is going to be for 70 years. 
So Daniel is reading, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is reading the prophecy, the scroll, the prophet Isaiah, seeing that it's going to be 70 years, and he realizes the 70 years are about up. So he starts praying at the beginning of Daniel 9 and asking God what's next. And the angel Gabriel shows up and blows him away, not by answering his question, but revealing even something bigger to, uh, to Daniel. And here's what it says. Seventy-sevens are determined for your people in your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, um, God wants to show Daniel the big picture of how he's going to rescue all of humanity, not simply the Jewish people. And it starts with a word. It starts with this word, 77s. Now, the, the Hebrew word is the word Shabuah. And, and um, in, in English, we have words that describe a period of years. So we talk, you know, we talk about a dozen, it means 12. We talk about a decade, it means 10. Well, kind of baked into the, the Hebrew culture was this idea. Everything worked in sevens. And so se- a seven-year period was called um, a week of years. In Hebrew, it's called a Shabuah. And so now everything operated on a seven-year period cycle. So every seven days, you got a day off. Every seventh year was a Sabbath year. And so the land would get rest on the Sabbath year. And then after seven, seven year periods, 49 years on the 50th year, there would be what was called the Jubilee. And everybody was excited about the Jubilee year because everyone got the year off. So that's awesome. And all debts were canceled. So uh, land went back to the original owner. because So in Israel, you could really only lease land for 50 years, and then it would revert back to its original owner so that each of Israel's tribes would stay intact. You know, you'd get a call from your mortgage company like, hey, don't send in a payment. It's, it's all covered. It's, it's Jubilee. So um, you're, we're done with mortgage payments. It's paid off. Like none of us would need Dave Ramsey's help paying off Amex because all of that would be covered. Jubilee would take care of that. And then the other thing is uh, in the seventh year, they were supposed to give, as I mentioned, give the land rest. Um, just like Jews took uh, the se- every seventh day off. And so they were supposed to do the same thing for the land, except when they came into the land, they had never given the land rest. And so Jeremiah, uh, uh, in, in the, the, the writer of Second Chronicles, when they go into captivity, look at what it says. You'll see it on the screen. You see it in your notes. He says, he carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him, that is, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the Babylonian king, uh, and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its desolation, it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. And so this is... The key is that uh, the reason why the captivity was 70 years was because they needed to give the land its rest. Now, I forgot to put uh, verse 25 of Daniel 9 in your notes, but I'm going to read it to you. Um, In fact, I'm going to read you verse 25 and 26. So he says this, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And the street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. Now, all right, so pause there and give me your attention. It's 70 weeks, and the cool thing is, is he says, 
know and understand from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that's when the clock starts. The cool thing is that we know when the clock starts, and the clock started on March 14th, 445 BC. And you say, well, how do we know that? Because that was the day that the, uh, King Artaxerxes gave Nehemiah, and you can read this in Nehemiah chapter 2, gave Nehemiah the okay to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls of the city. So the clock starts. And so the clock starts, so we, we start it, and so you'll see, um, if you see the next one, um, it should say the 70, okay, go back, go back, don't show that yet. All right, so 77s. We said is 70 times 7, because 7 is a week of years, so it's 490 years. It starts on March 45, uh, for, uh, March 14, 445 B.C. And what Daniel is saying is, in those 490 years, the plan of redemption is going to happen. Now, are you guys following this? Now, we're, we're, we have, this hasn't gotten difficult. We're at like fourth grade math so far, all right? I'm not a math wizard, but this, I'm even keeping up with this. But now we're getting into the word problem part of our program. And you remember word problems in math. You know, Joe is two years older than Carmencita. Carmencita's half the age of her mom. How old is her dad? So that's where we're at in that. So now, so here's what he says. He says, the command to rebuild, restore and rebuild Jerusalem is Nehemiah who went and built the wall. And that's, that starts there. So the clock starts. And now here's what, we, here's what we get. It's for seven weeks and 62 weeks. So seven week of years, that's 490 years, 62 weeks, 430. Let's just make it easy. And I added them for us. And that's 483 years. Now, but here's the problem is that we're looking at this because we, we operate on a solar calendar. The Jews operated on a lunar calendar. And... Um, so we got to convert this into days. So if we convert it from 483 years, it's a 360-day lunar calendar. That comes out to, and you'll see it on the screen, 173,880 days. Once you guys learn this, you gotta, I'll be out to lunch with somebody. You grab a napkin, you're going to blow people's minds when you'll be able to do this. I mean, just tell, let me tell you, you know what i about the Bible? Check this out. So let me show that. So now, so this is the, this is the amazing part of the prophecy. The, the angel says, from the moment that the command is given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah comes is 173,880 days, which leads us to believe or to ask the question, what, what, ha what date is that? Well, the good thing is, once again, because we can count, we know. It's April 6th, 32 AD. What happened on April 6th, 32 AD? Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. And this is why I think this is one of the most impressive prophecies, if not the most amazing in all the Bible, is that the Bible was giving us the exact day of the Messiah, and people were ready. They had the branches. There was a crowd gathered. They knew. It's like, well, how do you know Jesus was the Messiah? Because he's the only one who showed up. So well, I'm here to be the Messiah. You're late. I'm sorry. The position's been filled. You know, and so, so that's what happens. So listen, so they ride in, and that's why people were shouting. They were saying, Hosanna, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a quotation from Psalm 118. And by the way, before that, Jesus was like, hey, don't say anything, don't say anything. Now he's accepting it. Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm, and the people were supposed to sing it when the Messiah came that said, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And this is... Um, now, I know that we do this, you know, you, you get a, if you get like a 2023 calendar, if you're one of those people that still buy paper calendars, um, 
and uh, th- th- it'll have that, like if it's a Christian one, it'll th- like, this is the day the Lord has made, and it's like every day, or they just pick a day, you know, like November 9th, this is the day the Lord has made. Like, no, that's not how that works. It was a specific day. We use it to be like, hey, every day's a gift from God, which it is, but that's not the context. My kids use this, you know, uh, you know waking my kids up in the morning is like waking the dead. Um, but on Christmas Day... I could, my kids wake up at 5.30, and they're in the living room. They're like, this is the day the Lord has made. And they're trying to wait. Like, Christmas doesn't start until 8. And so, and this is, the thing that, this is the thing that happens, right? Is that this verse is in reference to the day the Messiah comes that we're supposed to rejoice. And that's why in, um, in Daniel chapter 9, it says, and after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off or literally suffer the death penalty but not for himself. Why not for himself? Because he's dying for the sins of others. Now, but you said, hold on, you said it was 490 years, 77s, and you've only talked about 69 of the sevens. So what's up with that last seven-year period? Did that happen seven years after Jesus died and resurrected? No, because it's like a stopwatch. It stops the clock after 69. That's why it's written in the way that it is, which seems, might seem a little clumsy, but it's not. It's, it's there specifically to show us that the clock is going to stop and there still remains this one seven-year period. Daniel talks about it if you read the rest of the chapter. We're going to pause there in, in that regard, for, and we'll come back to Daniel in a few weeks when we get to chapters 24 and 25, and we'll talk about those last seven years in great detail because Jesus talks about them um, when he's just leaving uh, the temple prior to his um, betrayal and, and arrest. Now, there's something I want to share uh, before we move on from this section and that I think is really important, and that is that God's timing has not been moved that he's working exactly on his schedule. This had been planned hundreds of years in advance. And sometimes what happens is, is that we have these expectations, we have these deadlines, we have these demands, and we think that God has forgotten us because he's not working on our timetable. Now listen, this is a huge lesson in spiritual life, that God is not working on our timetable or our time frame. He's working on his own. And Spiritual maturity is not us trying to get God, demand God do what we want him to do in our time. Instead, um, it is us realizing that we've got to get on his timetable and get on his clock. And that's why, listen, Jesus is, uh, God is unmoved by our demands and it's not lack of care. He's unmoved by our demands because he has a timetable that he's working on. In fact, you'll see it up on the screen in Galatians chapter 4. It's a simple passage, but it says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, that's a simple passage until you realize how pregnant it is with meaning. That when he says, when the fullness of time had come, it's another way of saying, when the time was absolutely right, God sent forth his son. But you know that the Jewish people had been praying for the Messiah morning, noon, and night for about 1,500 years before the Messiah came. And it, and it, it begs the question, like, well, then did it matter? Did it matter that, that these people prayed if God had already set in his time when it was going to happen? And the answer is absolutely it matters. And the reason that it matters is because the reason we pray isn't to get God to do what we want. The reason we pray is to get us in line with what God's will is. And by the way, praying every day for the Messiah, you know what that makes me? Hopeful for the Messiah. You know what it also makes me? Ready and living the kind of life that I'd want to be living when the Messiah shows up. Listen, in all my years of ministry and working with people, and as I've observed my own life, 
I'm telling you that most of the bad decisions that we make come from lack of patience. Impatience is the thing that will kill the good that God wants to do in your life. And, and we operate with these two possibilities in our hearts, and we've got to decide. But the two possibilities are, number one, God is totally in control, and the good that he is seeking uh, to do in my life will come if I trust him. The second thing is, is that God is either that or God is holding out on me, and I've got to take matters into my own hands and try to make things happen. And here's the thing that we have to understand, and that is that we never experience the blessing of God by violating the principles of God. And that's just a fact of spiritual life. We never experience the blessing of God by violating the principles of God. And this is what happens. This is when someone says, I want to get married, and I just, and the right person hasn't come along, but somebody came along, and I'll just marry them, and I'll just change them along the way. And there's deep regret later. It's what happens when we overspend and we get into debt and then because we convinced ourselves that our impatient was, impatience wasn't the problem, everybody else is just operating too slow. And then we look back and realize that our lack of patience hurt us. Listen, here's the reality, and, and this is just absolute truth, that you are more loved by God than we have the ability to even comprehend. And he loves us so much that he will even, he's even willing to be misunderstood by us for a little while because we didn't understand what he was doing in this season. So, not understanding, you can imagine what happened to these guys. Look what happens next in verse 12. So, um, Jesus goes into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things he did and the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? And then he left them and went out of the city of Bethany and he lodged there. And if you pause there, and give me your attention. This is huge because Jesus is, is um, revealing his timing. The second thing that he's doing is that Jesus is, re is using his authority. Now, if you read the other gospels, specifically the gospel of Mark, you'll find that Jesus comes into, the, uh, into Jerusalem. It's late in the day, and then he goes, um, he goes and rests. He comes back the next morning and walks into the temple. So this is happening now on Monday. He goes into the temple. And it's Monday of Passover week. And, and this is, uh, whenever people talk to me about like, you know, what would Jesus do? I love showing them this passage. Like, you know what's in the realm of reason is flipping over tables. And, uh, and if you read John chapter two, when he does this the first time, he flips over tables, he fashions a whip and he starts whipping people, which that's just one of my favorite pictures of Jesus. Because um, I'd like to do that sometimes. And, <laughs> and so, but here's the challenge. The challenge is that Jesus is angry, and we don't like talking about Jesus being angry. We, we, we like to think of Jesus as someone who wouldn't hurt a fly, you know, and, and, and then we, you know, we have that, if you remember that old song, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child, right? And, 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 uh, and you know, this, this is different, right? It's, it's like angry Jesus flipping over tables. Um, kids, stay away, or you might get hit with a projectile. You know, it's a different song. And, and what happens is, listen, 
There are situations that should make us angry. And the question is not if we're going to be angry. The question is, is that the anger should move us to act. There are things that if we aren't angered by them, something is wrong. Human trafficking should make us angry. Children being exploited should make us angry. The devil destroying marriages and families should make us angry. And that anger doesn't prompt us to sin. Instead, it moves us to serve. That's why in in Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul would say, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. The problem is, I mean, if we're being honest, we don't get angry over the right stuff. We get angry over trivial things. And then we kind of turn a blind eye to the things that really should move us emotionally. We get angry because somebody said something to us at work, and then we get home and take it out on our family. No, if you're going to get angry, let that anger propel you to do the right thing and deal with the person or situation that made you angry. But don't let your bad day become your family's bad night. And um, listen, and and don't, don't make your kids pay the price because somebody made you angry at work. Instead, if you're angry, channel it and make it prompt you to do something good. Okay, so let's analyze this scene because once again, sometimes people read this at first glance and they're like, why is Jesus flipping over tables? I mean, this is is wild. Um, Now, here's what you got to remember. It's Passover week in Israel. And this is huge. This is a celebration of remembering that God freed the Israelites from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. Every Jewish male was required to appear in the temple during Passover. And that means during Passover week, I mean, there'd be close to a million people coming in and out of the temple over this few-day period. And you couldn't come empty-handed. You had to bring a sacrifice to be offered on behalf of your family. But once again, you had people that were traveling from really distant lands from all over uh, the Roman Empire, some uh, in North Africa that were, that were coming up. And so you had to decide what you're going to do. And people say, I'm not going to travel with an animal. I'll just buy an animal when I get to Jerusalem. So people were also, also coming to Jerusalem with foreign currency from their homeland or from the Roman Empire. And so the religious leaders... Um, had cooked up this scheme that was making them very wealthy. So someone would show up with an animal. Let's say they lived close by. They showed up with an animal, and they're like, I'm sorry, your animal's not temple approved. You'll have to trade it for an approved lamb. And so then they're like, okay, so you can give us yours, and then, you know, we're like Ticketmaster, and there's like a whole bunch of fees that we add in there. And like, what is that fee? That's just the... we just because we can fee. And, um, and then, you know, here's, here's your ticket and, he- and, here- and here you go. And so they charge these ridiculous prices because they had a corner on the market and no- they had nowhere else to go. And uh, if you've ever bought lunch at Disney World, you know what these people were experiencing. By the way, who prices this stuff? There's a room somewhere where people are like, a burger and fries, what do we charge? Like, like what are you, like 45? I think like 45? I'm like, well, I mean... All right, 49, we'll do 49. And does it come with a drink? Okay, 59 with a drink. That's what we'll do. And so, uh, so I don't even know why they bother having a Dumbo ride. Seriously, we're the Dumbo being taken for a ride. And uh, seriously, I mean, and, uh, and, and every time I go there, and I'm, I'm just like, there, it, I should walk up the Dumbo ride, just a mirror, picture of me. Like, oh, okay, I get it now. I get it now. I'm going home. And so... But we don't. We just let them grab us by the ankles, and then they just shake us until all the money comes out. And like, all right, get out of here. We got, to, we got other people in line. And so, now, but this is the challenge, is that Jesus specifically gets upset when he talks about the money changers and those who sold doves. Now, um, there was a 
you know, once again, there were people of means in Israel, and there were a lot of people who were very poor. And so the doves were offered only by the poorest of people. Uh, in the book of Leviticus, which I know many of you read regularly, um, <laughs> Leviticus has destroyed many a good Bible plan. Like, I'm going to read through the whole Bible this year, and you like read Genesis, and you're like, this is so good. And you're like, Exodus, and you're like, it's just like the movie. And then you get to Leviticus, and you're like, you know, maybe I'll just bounce around from the Bible from now on. And... Uh, <laughs> It's, it, listen, it's a little tough. It's wonderful once you get it, but um, it takes a little bit of research to get it. So, but there is this little passage in uh, the book of Leviticus that says this. It says, if you cannot afford to bring a sheep, you may bring to the Lord two turtle doves or two pigeons as the penalty for your sin. So these religious leaders were exploiting even the, the poorest people in Israel who were sacrificially trying to obey God and make an offering, but were being grossly overcharged. Now, and that's why he mentions also the money changers. Now, uh, who were these guys? The money changers, like all currency, ancient or modern, has an image on it. American currency has the image of former presidents. Um, ancient currency was no different. Uh, Roman currency had the image of whatever Caesar was in power at that time. And so Jews or uh, converts to Judaism who lived in other parts of the world would travel to Israel for Passover, and what they had was their local currency. And so the leaders said, well, hey, your local currency isn't kosher, so you're going to need a temple-certified lamb, but you can't buy the temple-certified lamb until you get a temple shekel. And so, and uh, you know, the exchange rate was highway robbery, and this is what makes Jesus start flipping over tables. Now, the first time that he does it, I mentioned the whip, because the first time that he does it in John chapter 2, it says, and I, I just sometimes get fascinated by details, um, but it says that Jesus was flipping over tables and he fashioned a whip of cords. You know what that means? He made his own whip. That there was this moment, I mean, Jesus has this, these, finds, I guess, supplies and he's just, you know, and he's just making the whip, right? And then, and then he's like, huh, you're going to get it. You too. And he's like, all right, guys, let's do this. And, uh, and I'm just, I don't know. I don't know if it's exactly how it went down. We'll have to watch this season of The Chosen and see if it happened. Um, since uh, <laughs> yeah, I, do, I love the show, but I do love when people are like, you know, that's exactly how it happened. Like, we don't know. We're not positive. And uh, that person isn't even in the Bible, that, that, like that random person. And uh, they're like, are you sure? I'm like, pretty sure. And uh, so anyway... Um, but he does it in John chapter 2, and he does it. Now, let me just explain. This is the thing that I find so amazing. Jesus walks in. He's not um, a priest. He's not a Levite. He's not, like, in charge. Uh, he just starts flipping <laughs> over tables. Um, I, so this is when my wife was pregnant with my daughter, Olivia. So this is about 11 years ago. We, uh, we got a coupon in the mail for a restaurant that we liked, and we decided, we're like, hey. And, and at the time, Mia was four, Xander was two, and, and Livy was just about to be born. And uh, we said, let's go out to dinner. We haven't gone out to dinner in forever. And because when you have two little kids, you're just, the, the thing about going out to dinner when you have really little kids is I want to eat and just leave the mess somewhere. That's the whole point. Is it even the food? No. It's like, I just want to leave the mess and just go home. And, uh, and that, so that's, that was the big attraction for us. So we went, went to this restaurant we hadn't been to in a while, and uh, we were so excited to go back there. And so at the end of our meal, um, I'm sitting, and I have my, my back turned because I'm trying to get the server's attention so he can fill up my drink. And, um, and out of the corner of my eye, my wife, my eight-month pregnant wife, jumps out of her chair and slams the table with her napkin and then sits back down. And I, 
I'm like, are you okay? And she's like, yes, I'm fine. Uh, and then she opens the napkin. She says, there was a roach on the table. And it's like, oh, this conversation with the server just changed. And it didn't become, hey, could you refill my soda? It's like, hey, I need to see someone in ownership or management. And so um, now the, the kid sees the, uh, the, the, the napkin with the roach. He says, hey, I'm going to get the manager. The manager comes over and says the words that I never thought I would hear or wanted to hear. And so he comes over and he says, listen, I know it's a problem. And, and I'm like, oh, so this is not... This is not the first roach that you've found in your establishment, and, uh, and, and you guys just haven't fixed it yet. And I remember, and I'll never forget this conversation as long as I live, and he said, um, because the restaurant was in a strip mall, and so the, the, the bay next door was empty. Something was there and had closed. And he's like, you know, the problem is, is that they, um, the place next door closed, and, uh, you know, they, they love being in places like that. And I'm like, well, I don't really know enough about Roach Society to comment on that, <laughs> but I do know that I'm not super happy with the fact that it was on my table. And, and he says, well, it was, um, uh, he goes, you know, the thing is, is that we sprayed, but you know, the spraying, it really just makes them angry. I said, that's weird. I, I thought it made them dead. And, uh, <laughs> but I didn't know that it caused them emotional distress. And, uh, and so anyway, so bad news, Roach on our table. Good news, meal was free. Unfortunate news, my wife has never allowed us to go back there. And uh, I even, someone told me they were going there. I'm like, dude, can you pick me up some mozzarella sticks from there? And there, she was like, no way. We are boycotting that place forever. And I'm like, come on, they're mozzarella sticks. You know, anyway, so I couldn't do it. I need them to change their name or something so I can start going back there with a clear conscience. But I want you to imagine this happened. My wife, uh, imagine my eight-month pregnant wife flipping over tables at the restaurant, you know, like she, she got a couple of napkins together. She's whipping the employees, calling out, start cleaning. You start spraying and you start sanitizing. And, uh, and, and uh, listen, first of all, that would be an amazing sight to behold um, if you don't work there. But at some point, someone would say, why are you telling us what to do? You don't work here. And this is the thing that I just think is that Jesus shows up and he starts flipping over tables and whipping people and nobody says, I'm sorry, you don't work here. And, uh, but, they, but these people just realize that, listen, they know what they're doing is so shady that someone calls out and corrects them and they have no answer for it. And this is the, and, and, and so they, there's no response. They just, they just start running. And, and, you know, in all fairness, it's probably hard to get a word in when the Messiah's gone full Indiana Jones. is like whipping people out of the temple. And uh, they're like, you know, we'll talk about this some other time. And, uh, and so now, this, this whole point, and this is really big, because you go to the temple and it is, a, it is this grandiose Thing. In fact, one historian says, if, you had nev if you've never seen the temple at the time of Herod, which is what we're talking about, he said this, you've never seen a beautiful building. And so this was a, a beautiful structure. And all on the outside, it was like, God is here. And then everything that was happening on the inside was God was not here. And that, you have to start with that backdrop to really understand what happens next. Look what happens and then... Um, we're going to bring it to a close. In verse 18, it says this. Now, in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And said to it, let no fruit go, grow on you ever 
again. Now, let me just pause there for a second. It would take, for a tree to wither, completely wither, takes months, if not a couple of years, for a tree to totally wither. Now, um, in the Gospel of Mark, we learn that Jesus curses the fig tree and then comes back the next morning. And so uh, that's why here it says immediately the fig tree withered away because it happened all in one night. It didn't happen in a year, a year and a half. I mean, it happened so quickly. Okay, and then here's the thing that you need to see, verse 20. He says, and when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? And Jesus answered and said to them, assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will Received. And if you pause there and give me your attention, last thing I want to tell you is that Jesus is challenging his disciples. Now, this story, um, when I was a young Christian, I found this story with the fig tree very troubling. And um, because what it seems like is he just left uh, dealing with the, the whole money changer thing and was angry about that. And then it, it, it almost feels like he flies off the handle and curses the fig tree for not having fruit. I mean, what if somebody plucked all the fruit from before. You know, we don't know. Um, the other thing that we learn is what happens in the gospel of Mark. Let me read it to you. You'll see it on the screen in Mark chapter 11. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. He came to it and found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. So he curses a fig tree that it's not even fig season. And the third thing is, is that if he wanted to, I mean, he just, he multiplied loaves and fish. Couldn't he have just like grabbed a branch and just like energize? I'm not sure exactly how fig production happens, but maybe supernatural fig, you just don't, you know, and just some, you jolt it and then some figs produce. Or you just like, boom, Jesus just shows up. What is that? You know, Jesus, that's eh, fig newtons. It's going to be invented soon. Um, you know, I don't know. But like I said, this, this really troubled me as a young Christian because it seemed like Jesus was overreacting until I understood what was happening and, and understood the background. Now, one of the things that the gospel writers do, and this is just a way that you write ancient literature, and that is that there's a narrative, and then there's a story in the middle, and then there's another part of the narrative, and the story in the middle is the one, it's supposed to explain what's happening before and after. It's a picture of what's happening before and after. When it happens in the, Goth the gospel of Matthew, you're going to love this. You're going to be uh, popular with your friends. Um, it's called the Matthean interpolation, which, by the way, sounds super impressive. You know, we were talking today at church about a Matthean interpolation. Do you know what that is? No. Church you go to is trash, that's why. And so, anyway, I don't, don't say that. You can think that, but you can't say it. And so, <laughs> don't say that, because uh, I know pretty much every pastor in this area. So, uh, so, <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, what happens is, is that, so um, once again, you can call it a Matthean interpolation. I call it a Matthew sandwich, but you call it whatever you want. And that is, there's one thing, there's the other thing, and then there's something in the middle. That's a sandwich to me. And so, but the point is this. Matthew puts the story of the fig tree in between the beautiful building of the temple. Everything is so beautiful on the outside, but in the, in the middle, it's rotted. And then what's going to happen next, and we'll look at this next time, the story, he tells a parable of a father telling his son to do something, and the son says, I will absolutely do it, but in the end is disobedient to his father. 
So the fig tree is showing us what this means in a picture. The fig tree, had, it was the symbol of the nation of Israel. It had great significance in the Jewish mind. It was, the fig tree was a symbol of peace, prosperity, and the Messianic age. Uh, during, uh, in, in, in 1 Kings chapter 4, during, it says, During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, lived in safety, and each man lived under his, uh, uh, each man under his own vine, and fig tree. And that's just a picture of dwelling in safety and dwelling in prosperity. And if, you, if you've listened to the Hamilton play, you know that that's when Washington wants to step down. He says, I want to sit under my own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. They'll be safe in the nation we've made. Something like that, right? If you've heard it, if you haven't, check it out. So thank you. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. Uh, I'll be here all week. So tip, tip your waitresses. So now, but this is also a picture of what will happen when the Messiah comes. It'll be like the days of Solomon. In Zechariah chapter 3, uh, it says, In that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree, declares the Lord. So here comes the question. Why is Jesus cursing the fig tree? Jesus is hungry. He comes over to the fig tree. There's no figs. But as we learned, it's not fig season. But here's the thing that you have to understand about figs is that Figs produce, fig trees produce figs before they produce leaves. So to see a fig tree full of leaves means this thing should have been ripe with figs. But instead, it's totally barren. There's no figs. And Jesus uses it as an object lesson of the hypocrisy of the nation of Israel. It was the, fig tree was the national symbol of Israel, and it served as this illustration that Israel had an outward display of faith, an outward display of religious belief, but no real fruit. In fact, Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 7 on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, a good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit. A bad tree cannot produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Jesus is saying this, you can't fake being something forever. Because the true you will eventually come out, whether it's good or bad. And so Jesus gives these guys an object lesson like you'd read from an Old Testament prophet to reveal what's really happening in Israel. That they had leaves. They had all the outward look of spirituality, but they had none of the fruit. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.